I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation 17, the 17th chapter of Revelation. I know you don't think it can be done, but we are going to cover that entire chapter tonight. Pray for me. And to save time, I'm going to just read the first two verses that introduce the vision to us, what we can expect to see in this vision that John receives. And then we'll obviously walk through all of the verses as we progress through the rest of the evening. But let's look first then at Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2. I'll read those to you, reminding you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so let us tremble before it as such and receive it with great joy from him as he has provided it for us. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let's ask the Lord to bless it to us now. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that you are in your holy temple and that your throne is in the heavens. As the judge of all the universe, your eyes see and your eyelids test the children of man. And we know that as your children, you test even us. But we also know that your soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so we acknowledge together that you are righteous and that you love righteous deeds. And we thank you that you have graciously lovingly, mercifully counted us as righteous in your Son, even though we are unrighteous and sinful in and of ourselves. But in Him, in your beloved Son, we know that we will behold your face. For in your Son, we are counted as upright. And so, even now, our souls take refuge in you. Indeed, we fly to you even as the birds seek shelter in their nests. Teach us now from your word, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's very sad to me when I see how the book of Revelation is often handled by Christians. Because oftentimes when they handle the book of Revelation, they think that what they're going to figure out is the who is involved in the end times, and when the end times are going to happen, and where they're going to happen. And so they approach it as a puzzle that they need to put all of these pieces together so that they can know what the end times will look like. And that just completely misses the point of the book of Revelation. It just sends you on a rabbit trail that is completely unnecessary and wrong-headed. Because what is the purpose of this vision? This vision is a vision of the glory of Christ, of how he sustains his people, 
his church in these times between his first coming and his second coming. And it shows us in glory how he will fully and finally crush his enemies. And you see, brothers and sisters, we need to see that with absolute clarity. Why? So that it is stabbed in our hearts the temptation to compromise with the flesh and the world and the devil. And so we need to keep that very clearly in our minds as we turn now to Revelation chapter 17. And we behold the judgment of Christ as he pours it out upon Babylon. And as we look at this chapter, it's going to fall out for us very neatly in two points. First of all, we're going to look at a description of Babylon in verses 1 through 6, how Babylon is described to John in this vision. And second of all, in verses 7 through 18, through the rest of the chapter, we're going to look at an explanation of Babylon, what her role is at the end of all things, and how she meets her final demise, actually, in broad brushstrokes. And again, the intent of this vision being given to us is so that we would see the final outcome of Babylon and say we don't want to have anything to do with her. Why compromise with the losing side when we know we're on the side that is ultimately going to win? And so let's look then at this chapter together, first by looking at a description of Babylon in verse 1. Verse 1, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So the angel, one of the angels who has one of the bulls, comes to John and says, I've got a vision for you to see. I want you to see the end of Babylon, that great prostitute. This is the final judgment of their enemies that the martyrs have been praying for back in Revelation 6, that the Jeremiah in particular as a prophet foretold would happen, and now we actually see it happening here in this vision. Now the question is, why is Babylon going to be judged? And we see the answer to that question in verse 2. Look there with me. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So why is she being judged? The charge here is that she has drawn nations and kings into sexual immorality. And no doubt, actual sexual immorality is involved here. But what's being alluded to in the vision even more is the spiritual adultery and idolatry that the kings have fallen prey to, that the nations have fallen prey to. Because John is, is alluding to, again, Jeremiah and many of the prophets, where Babylon is seen as this prostitute who tells the kings, tells the nations, come and follow me in idolatry, in spiritual adultery, and I will establish for you economic security and economic prosperity. She promises this, and, and so the kings and the nations give themselves over to it. And so she's going to be punished for this. She's going to be punished for the ways that she has allured the nations away from the worship of the one true God and led them in adultery under the promise of economic security and prosperity. Then what we see is that the angel actually takes John in his vision to a different location to see this woman. 
And so we see that there in verse 3. So let's look there together. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you've been with us all the way through the book of Revelation, then you should be remembering a preceding chapter as we receive this description of this woman in this vision. Your mind should drift back to Revelation chapter 12. Because what do we see in Revelation 12? John is again taken to a wilderness. And what does he see? He sees a woman. And you recall the woman represents the people of God, the church. And she gives birth to a child who this red dragon with uh, seven heads and ten horns, by the way, tries to devour this man-child who is the Messiah and the woman and her offspring. And so we're seeing the persecution that the church is experiencing from the dragon, from Satan himself. And of course, we remember that the wilderness represents what? The wilderness represents the sufferings that we as God's people experience in this fallen world. Sufferings, persecutions, trials, temptations. And yet, the Lord provides and protects for this woman in Revelation 12. So now we have this contrast, right? We've got that woman in our mind from Revelation 12. And now here we're introduced to another woman who is also in the wilderness. But she's not being pursued by this scarlet beast. Again, you notice the association between the red dragon and the scarlet beast. She is actually in an alliance with this beast, isn't she? Why do we know that? Because she's sitting on top of it, and it's carrying her around. And so what we're being shown here is that there is this an alliance between the beast, which represents what? It represents the fallen world governments as they're under satanic influence in opposition to God, in opposition to his church, and Babylon and so the social economic arm of Satan's regime on earth and the political government structures have this alliance together. And they're the ones that are actually pursuing and persecuting the woman back in Revelation chapter 12. And so what we're going to see again and again throughout Revelation 17 is we're going to see the contrast between these two women again and again and again between the church of Christ and between this great prostitute, um, the woman Babylon. John goes on to describe the woman in verse 4. So let's look there. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So, How is she dressed here? She's dressed in such a way that she's showing the wealth that she has, doesn't she? She's dressed in, in fine colors, purple, scarlet. She's got gold, jewels, pearls. Remember the promise that she's making to the nations. I can make you wealthy. I can offer you economic prosperity. I mean, look at what I'd be able to dress like this if I couldn't offer that to you. And again, we have the contrast between this extravagant, ostentatious, seductive, temptress that Babylon is, and then we have the contrast later on in the remaining chapters of Revelation with the woman who is the bride of Christ, adorned for her husband in fine linen, pure and bright. And so we're to be disgusted 
by the prostitute here and were to to adore the bride of Christ. John's intentionally using this language to that end. And you also notice, though, that the prostitute here has what in her hand? She has a golden cup that's full of abominations. And this is a very clear reference back to Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 7, where historic Babylon is also envisioned as this woman who holds this golden cup. And again, she offers it to the nations. She offers it to the kings, saying, if you will but drink it and follow me in my idolatry, I will establish you financially. I will care for you so that you will prosper. And so there's this this close association, this language that John is, is pulling from the prophets, and we're to see this woman, and we're to be utterly disgusted by her. Then in verse 5, we see that John explicitly reveals to us who this woman is. Just in case you're like, where did Jason get that this is Babylon? Well, here we go. Look at verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This isn't the first time that we learn somebody's identity because of their name being written on their forehead, right? We see all throughout the book, we learn about people's relationship to either God or Satan based on names that they have written on their heads. And this mystery here is that we don't know who this is, but now we do. It's Babylon. And this takes us all the way back to what we heard about this morning, if you were with us in Genesis chapter 9, doesn't it? It takes us all the way back to the, the city of man, the, the line of the seed of the serpent unbelievers who are opposed to God. It takes us all the way back to Babel, that city that Nimrod established, Ham's descendant. And so we're seeing that, that all throughout Scripture, we have the, the seed of the serpent being represented as Babylon, right? This is why in his book, The City of God, St. Augustine says, you can sum up all of history as this battle between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God. Babylon being unbelievers, Jerusalem being believers, those whom God has graciously saved unto himself. And so this is who this is. And notice that she is the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Remember in Revelation 12, the woman, the the body of Christ, the church, the people of God, she's called the mother of all these offspring, all these believers that come from her. Because the church, as it fulfills its God-given role, administering the word, preaching the gospel, believers are born by Christ's spirit. And so she is the source of believers. And we see here, in contradistinction to that, Babylon is the mother of every unbeliever, every idolater, all the abominations that we see in our earth. She is the source of it all. And so we're to be revolted by her. We're to be disgusted by her. And we're to understand that there is a war raging between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between Babylon and Jerusalem. If you don't believe me, just look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, in common parlance today, don't we say, man, that person sure is drunk on their success. 
right? They, they're riding high on whatever it is that they've accomplished, and, and they're acting in such a way that they, they, they're expressing to us. They, they think they're invincible. And John sees the woman drunk here on what is her success? That she is persecuting the saints. She is persecuting the church of God. Perhaps economically, right? Because she holds the power there over that. And so we saw earlier in Revelation, some of the tradesmen that were Christians, they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And so then they couldn't get this certificate and have their shop open and make a living for their family. And so you're seeing this economic persecution happening from Babylon upon the saints. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were killed. And she loves this. She loves doing this to Christ's people. And so John sees this vision And rightly so, what's his response? Look at the very tail end of verse 6 there. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Quite literally in the Greek, John is saying he marveled with great marvel. He's left speechless. And I think he's equal parts both terrified by what he sees here and equal parts bewildered by what in the world does this mean? I mean, if if the beast, the governing officials, that political arm of Satan's regime on earth, and the religious and economic arm represented by Babylon and the beast are coming together, what hope does the church have? Boy, things are going to get really bad here. And so John is in a state of bewilderment and marveling at this. And the angel will actually address that as we look at the second point. But before we get there to the rest of the chapter... I did want to apply this a little bit. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see how helpful this description and understanding of what's happening in our world actually is. You understand that behind the political and economic and false religious structures, because of the people in places of power and position in those institutions, under the influence and sway of Satan himself... That's why we're seeing what's happening to the church. That's why we see it happening here in America and across the globe. So the point is, don't be surprised by that when you see it happening. These are our enemies. Of course, they're going to try to do these things to us. Satan is the one who's behind the persecution of the church. But here's the other thing that that I really want to spend some time on. We need to be aware of the temptation that Babylon in all of her trappings, in all of her wares, in all of her allurement and temptation is to you and to me. Because if you don't think that, that she pulls on your heartstrings, if you will, in offering to you, hey, just compromise a little bit. I can give you economic prosperity. I can protect you. I can cause you to thrive. If you don't feel that pull on you, Every day of your life, you're either not paying attention, you don't know your heart very well, or you don't know your Bible very well. Brothers and sisters, we are all prone to this. And it is nothing short of spiritual adultery and idolatry. Isn't that what James calls it in James chapter 4, verse 4? He calls those who sin and compromise, he calls them spiritual adulterers. And he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You'll either be at peace with one and at enmity with the other. And so we must understand this as sin and rebellion and idolatry and repent of it. But that's not all. We must also turn our eyes 
on Christ our Savior. Because one of the things that we celebrate during the Advent season, the thing that we celebrate, is that the Son of God, sent by the Father in love and in grace and in mercy, took on flesh to fulfill all righteousness for us, to rebuff the temptations of the flesh and the world and the devil. And we actually see this in his ministry, don't we? What's the first thing that happens to Jesus in his ministry? He's, we see this in Matthew 4. He's driven by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. And Satan comes and says, I can offer you security. I can offer you all the riches of the world. All the things that God the Father promised you, I can give you those. What a liar. No, he can't. Those aren't his to give. And yet he says, just worship me. Just commit idolatry. And you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you the nations. I'll give you all its wealth. I'll give you all its riches. And Jesus, in our place, rebuffs Satan in his temptations. And he doesn't give in. And do you see why he does that? He does that for you and for me because Babylon only does what Satan does. And so Adam and Eve failed in the garden, didn't they? Israel failed under the temptation in the wilderness that they experienced. And you and I, in these wilderness wanderings that we experience in this life, we often compromise and give in to temptation ourselves, don't we? And so we need a second Adam. We need true Israel. We need Jesus to come and fulfill all righteousness in our place. And praise be to God, he has. And that righteousness is then counted as ours. And all the ways that we've failed. And know that there's a price to pay. That's been paid in full by Christ on the cross. And so we must not only repent of this idolatry as we commit it, but look to Christ and fly to him. And know that he has fulfilled all righteousness and paid that penalty in full on the cross for us. So that we can then continue on in this journey. And not compromise any more than we already have. So that's the description of Babylon. Now let's look at the explanation of Babylon in verses 7 through 18. Let's look first at verses 7 and 8 there. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So the angel says, John, you don't need to marvel anymore. I'll tell you what's, what the mystery is here, what's going on. And by the way, John's using that word mystery. He's borrowing it from Daniel. And really what the mystery is, is things look one way, but actually it's going to turn out very differently than you think. And I think that's the mystery that he's talking about here. It looks like, man, the beast and the woman are going to own the church and crush it. And yet there's a mystery because what's actually going to happen here? Well, let's see how this falls out. First of all, he explains the mystery of the beast. And I hope you caught the angel's mocking tone here of the beast. Because how is God described again and again and again all throughout the book of Revelation? It's said of him that he was and is and is to come. And a big emphasis there is on God's eternality, that he is eternal. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. 
There's never a time when he was not. There never will be a time when God is not. And so the angel is mocking the beast here by saying he claims eternality for himself, but he doesn't actually have it. The government, the state under demonic influence, claims that it can offer you security and prosperity forever, but it actually can't. Why? Because why is the beast not? What is the the reference to is not? Don't you understand, brothers and sisters, the back of demonic government was broken at the cross, in Christ's death, in Christ's resurrection. And so ultimately, Satan and his forces are a defeated enemy. And yet, they still persist, don't they? They still persist because their final end won't come until Jesus comes back again. And so what happens? There's this meteoric rise of satanic government and the power that they wield such that unbelievers, those whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb's book of life, those who are not elect see this meteoric rise and they see it as as like a resurrection. And so do you see how the beast mimics and tries to, to Christ himself? He's an antichrist. He's a false messiah. Don't you see this in politics today? Don't you see this with the, the candidates? If you just get me in office, if you just vote for me, my goodness, heaven is going to fall out of the sky and come down on earth. I am going to bring utopia. I will bring the change. You can hope in me, right? And I'll, I'll give you that security, that prosperity. I'll give it all to you forever. And brothers and sisters, don't you see? It's a lie. And so the angel is mocking the beast here saying his, his end is sure. And so he's not the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one who was and is not and is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we should not trust ultimately in the government. Don't worship it. Don't despise it if your candidate's not there. Don't worship it if they are, because there are Satan's henchmen in every level of government, and he's influencing it mightily, and so we're not to trust it. Now, the next thing that we see here is that the angel goes on to impart wisdom by revealing the mystery of the seven heads in verses 9 and 10. So look there with me. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And what I want you to not miss here is behold how Christ provides for his church. Because this this idea of having wisdom to endure the latter days, which is what we are in, this is a reference back to the end of Daniel, where Daniel says, if you're going to endure these latter days, you need wisdom. Well, the angel, at the behest of Christ, who's caring for his church, us, says, here's the wisdom that you need to understand these seven mountains. And, and what is this? So, so a lot of commentators throughout history have tried to do weird things here, saying, well, it's these seven specific kings. And so then they go through, or it's these seven specific kingdoms, or it's because Rome was built on seven hills, and so it's just a reference to Rome. Again, I think all that's wrong-headed. What have we seen again and again throughout the book of Revelation? The number seven is used symbolically for this idea of fullness or completeness. 
And so what we're being shown here is all of the kingdoms of man, the city of man, as it's opposed to God in all of its various iterations. And did you notice the, the formula again? Past, present, future. Five kingdoms have already been. One is right now and one is yet to come. Part of the encouragement to the church is a lot of this has already happened. <laughs> You've already endured a lot of these kingdoms. There's just a little bit more that you have to endure. And so this is what's being represented to us here. This is the mystery of the seven heads. Now, John goes on to say that there is a relation that the beast has to these seven heads. And so let's look at that there in verse 11. He says in verse 11, As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So you're seeing a close association between the beast and the seven, aren't you? That's what you're seeing here. And so what is the beast as it is this eighth kingdom? Quite simply, I think what that's going to look like is it's the final kingdom that's in existence when Jesus comes back. And I think what John is communicating to us here, what the angel's communicating in the vision is, it's going to be such an atrocious government, so demonic, so satanic, that it's going to seem like Satan himself has come down and is ruling and reigning over the government. And then what will happen? The end will come. You notice how brief each one of these these rules and reigns are, and their doom is certain, every single one of them. Now, the angel goes from there to explaining the mystery of the ten horns. So let's look there. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so again, I think we'd be mistaken to think, okay, so here's ten kings, right? Ten, like, specific kings that we need to figure out who they are. No, no, no. Ten is is representing this number of fullness of power, right? Horns represent power throughout Scripture. And so there's this, this political might that will exist at the end of all things, and these governing rulers will hand over their power and their authority to the beast. And then the beast and all the government will make war on Christ, And on his church, but Christ will conquer them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And brothers and sisters, we will be victorious with him because by his grace, we are called and chosen and faithful. And so this is what we're being shown here. Now, the angel's not done. He then goes on to explain to us the mystery of the waters. So look at verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw... Where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So this is a reference back to verse 1, where we saw this great prostitute Babylon. You notice there at the end that she was seated on many waters. Well, what is that all about? Well, sitting down carries with it this idea symbolically of power, having authority over it, right? Again and again. The Lord is sitting on his throne in the heavens, and he rules and reigns over all things. The woman is sitting here on many waters, and here in verse 15, we're told that those waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. With her temptations and enticements, she has won many over. 
She has won over a great multitude that have said, yeah, we want economic prosperity. Absolutely, we'll come down and commit adultery with you and commit ourselves to you. And so now the stage is set. So you've got the beast having all of this authority, all this power, the political arm of Satan's regime on earth. And you have the woman uh, representing the religious and economic systems under demonic influence. And, and then something very interesting is going to happen. Because, right, you're thinking, well, that's it for the church. And yet there's this ironic twist that happens, and I think this is the real mystery. So look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter with me. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Not quite how you thought it would turn out, huh? What ends up happening? Well, the beast and the rulers turn on the prostitute, on the woman. And what do we have? We have full-on civil war. You say, well, what exactly does that look like? Well, it looks like civil war. (laughs) We know what civil wars have looked like throughout history. Those have all just been faint echoes of whatever this is going to look like. And so what we see is that the prostitute is devoured. This language here, her flesh being devoured, she's left desolate, naked. This is all language that John's borrowing from the prophets in the Old Testament. All of this language was applied to Israel. When she whored herself out to the nations instead of turning to God. And God says, I'm going to do all of these things to Israel. Well, now it's all being applied to Babylon, right? You notice the reference to Jezebel and her flesh will be devoured, right? We remember what atrocious things happen to that terrible woman and that's exactly what's going to happen to Babylon here and yet you notice in verse 17 why is all of this happening because God has put it in the hearts of the beast and of the government to do this to the woman and so remember this looks really bad for the church and yet what is this this is all God's judgment being poured out This is a bigger, more expansive picture of the sixth and seventh bowl that we saw back in chapter 16. And so there's this massive civil war that ends with judgment being poured out on Babylon. And so, brothers and sisters, what application can we walk away with this with? Well, first of all, again, don't be surprised at the corruption of the world's systems. God has clearly revealed that this is how it's going to be and it's judgment upon fallen mankind don't be surprised by that and don't worship the government don't worship the economic system don't worship the false religious systems we can see we could spend all night talking about the different ways that that shows up in our culture and the ways that we ourselves are tempted but we're to understand that as unsettling as all that is to see god is sovereign over all of this and he has his sovereign purposes for doing this second of all I want to, again, go back to as temptations settle in our hearts and our minds to compromise with the world, we need to remember what the end of all these institutions that are opposed to God finally is. Because what we're shown here is that evil is necessarily self-destructive, isn't it? And that should make perfect sense to us. Because God has made us, 
in his image, to live a very specific way. And if we don't live that way, brothers and sisters, if any image bearer of God doesn't live in that way, it is necessarily self-destruction, necessarily to walk in the ways of evil instead of the ways of God as he has revealed in his holy law. And so what we see here is <laughs> to fall under the sway of Babylon and the beast is to join them in self-destruction. So why go down that path? I love this warning. This is a great warning for us to heed. This is a great motive for us to not give in to those temptations that so strongly pull on our hearts as Babylon in a variety of ways sends out her siren calls into the world. We're to hate even the the beginnings of desires to follow after her instead of enjoying and deepening and reveling in the fellowship and communion that we have with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. So don't, don't believe Babylon's lies, that she can give you any security. She can't. Don't believe the government's lies, that it can ultimately give you any lasting security. Instead, who offers us security that, that we can trust? And how do we conquer and overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil? Well, John's told us very clearly. He's told us very clearly in his first epistle in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we have been born of God. Because his spirit has come and regenerated us, united us to the Son. And John goes on to say, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, don't misunderstand John. You're not to be like, yes, my faith. Oh, I love my faith. I worship my faith. No, 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 no. We've been given graciously the gift of faith and we're united to Christ. We are conquerors because Christ is conqueror. We overcome because he has already overcome. And so John's saying it's by faith because that's the instrumental means by which we're united with Christ. And so who offers you security? Christ does. So look to him. Fly to him. He is your refuge. And so as we do this, we can then say along with the psalmists, I put not my trust in princes, but instead in the Lord I take refuge, even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May he use his word to the end that we don't compromise, but instead continue in his ways. Lord, make it so. Amen.